So this is rather a pompous title, isn't it? Creativity and Change in Public Service Broadcasting, Managing the Tough Times. Um, and I want to start by saying um, I'm going to share what I've learned along the way. Um, I've never pretended to be a flawless leader or someone with all the answers. I'm going to take you through some of the change I've been involved with at the BBC and some of what I've learned, which I hope will give you some insights when you're up against your own creative and team leadership challenges. Um, journalism is, of course, a creative occupation, but it differs from some other areas of creativity where you literally start with a blank piece of paper and your idea job is to come up with an idea or a treatment which is new or fresh or something no one else has really done. In journalism, you start in a different place. You've obviously got an idea involving facts or allegations or you've picked up on a hint of something. Um, I've done a lot of broadcast journalism over the years, including with David. I've won several awards. But I'd say that my first experience of being a creative leader, as opposed to, as it were, a creative worker, um, came as I moved from being a current affairs reporter in radio and television into being the editor of a flagship Radio 4 current affairs documentary programme called File on 4. That's on Radio 4, which is our premier speech network. Um, now, I think it's very interesting being a reporter in an organisation like the BBC, which has journalism at its heart. Um, Long-form reporting certainly involves creativity in its broadest sense. You have to find and develop ideas, you have to think of clear and clever ways to tell your story using sound and images. You have to use your voice, the pauses, the sense of building a narrative to keep your audience hooked. But reporting is also a curiously destructive job, I think. Um, you're paid to unpick things. You're paid to knock things down, you know, political promises, how they failed you, public policy, how it never worked, bad behaviour, who's done what to whom. Um, I was extremely good at knocking down story ideas, my own and others. I could see the fault lines in almost anything. On one level, it made me a very effective reporter, but looking back, I'm not sure it made me very creative. Um, as I said, that journey really began when I became the editor of a programme and suddenly knocking things down all the time became a bit of a problem. Because as an editor, if you constantly knock things down, you literally have nothing to put on air. Mm. Um, so I had to learn ways of developing more ideas in a very small team. Uh, and I had to learn how to build not just to unpick and analyse till something disappeared. Not propping up bad ideas or weak ideas, but seeing the potential in something small and knowing how to inspire confidence in it and grow it into a programme. So being confident in your skills as a builder seems to me to be a very important part of creative <coughs> leadership in journalism and elsewhere. Um, I moved up to being Head of Current Affairs and in a way, way that is also where I started commissioning more creatively, often commissioning against type. So traditional current affairs is intently serious, often uh, has a sense of self-importance, certainly takes the moral high ground. I bow to you, John, sitting at the back of the room there, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so I did commission a lot of those sorts of programmes, I was proud of them, but I also tried to commission stuff that got information over to people in different kind of ways. So for example, I commissioned a personal finance programme called Your Money and Your Life with a presenter called Alvin Hall, who was black, he was gay, he was a New Yorker with a very mild, rather droll manner. 
and he gained the trust of ordinary people and taught them basic economics through exploring their practical and emotional relationship with money. And it was quite a big hit for BBC Two and very different for a current affairs programme. Um, but in a sense, I think the, the, the biggest call to creative leadership in my life was when I became controller of Radio 4, our premier speech um, service. Whilst you're in this country, I do hope you will get a chance to listen to it. I'm sure some of you already are. Um, it's a, a unique service and something the BBC is incredibly proud of. Um, I'd always been in love with Radio 4 as a listener, and I felt awed by the passion its audiences have for it. For me, it was something to cherish and nurture with its drama, comedy, features, news, current affairs, science, arts, maths. It's unlike any other service that I've ever encountered in the world. And that includes World Service English, which I love, but World Service English is focused almost exclusively these days on journalism. And of course, if you cherish the station, you have to cherish the people who make the programmes and give them a clear vision of what you want from them. Um, it's not about you any longer, which is usually the point when you're making your own programme. It's about you as a creative enabler, somebody who grows people and ideas. So to encourage our programme makers, I focused on audience insight. And by insight, I do not mean the audience numbers. You know, we've got, we are blessed in the BBC because of the way we're funded, that although we need to give everybody something of value every week, we are not driven by numbers, and certainly not in radio, where you don't get overnight figures. So I wanted to um, inspire programme makers by helping them understand the mood and feeling of their audiences. That's actually quite commonplace now as audience insight. It was very unusual going back then. Um, and I wanted to think, particularly our younger teams, to think about their audience as people with interesting inner lives and life experience. Um, at that point, the average age listener to Radio 4 was then about 53. The average aged producer for Radio 4 was probably in their mid-30s. That was quite a big gap. They were making programmes for people who felt like their parents, but it was incredibly important. They didn't see them as their parents. So I created a session, I researched myself because I was interested in it, called The Fabulous 50s and took these much younger production teams through the kinds of experiences their average aid audiences would have grown up with. Things like the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Kennedy assassinations, the rise of the Beatles, the development of popular culture. We developed a huge number of very interesting ideas for the network because of thinking about the life experiences of their average aged audience. I think I also um, trusted our audience. They're always regarded in Radio 4 as very, very conservative, particularly if you change the schedule. But actually, that turned out to be a stereotype of them they didn't really deserve. So, for example, I did some groundbreaking scheduling. Um, I did Stephen Fry reading the first of the Harry Potter books all day, one boxing day. Um, I mean, the whole of FM we devoted to um, uh, this reading. And uh, we put the news and other programmes on long wave. I, it was before social media, but I got about 200 letters, which in those days was a lot, saying things like, how dare you do this? You know, you have devoted Radio 4 to the young. And um, I got one that said, you bitch, resign now. Uh, which I thought was very un-Radio 4. Um, but um, it was interesting. We did normally... Um, Christmas is a, a television experience in this country. So we had to commission some special audience research of measurement. And actually 4 million people 
tuned into that day-long continuous reading. So it was a huge hit. Um, and I then got a lot of letters from people saying they'd got together with a picnic basket full of food and seven members of the family or their friends to enjoy listening to this experience. About that time too, Greg Dyke was our Director General and he asked me to lead the creativity theme team as part of his culture change programme called Making It Happen. And it was there that I first learned from companies both in the UK and the, the States that what I'd assumed about creativity, which is that um, some people are just more creative than others, which I still believe to be true. But actually, there are tools and techniques that you can use which demonstrably improve a team's creativity, by which I mean successful, innovative ideas. Um, and actually, um, this kind of creativity development is a discipline, um, not just an art form. There was a huge amount of resistance to the idea of that creativity can be a discipline, not just a force of nature, because in the BBC, I think it's fair to say that just as we're in love with the idea of the romantic journalist, we're also in love with the idea of the auteur, the ideas person who, as I say, from a clean sheet of paper, summons up ideas. And we're very lucky in the BBC. We've actually got lots of those kinds of people. But given how much we do, there are never enough of those kinds of people to produce enough ideas for the changing needs of our audience. Um, so we developed at that point some creativity training and that's actually gone on to be so successful that we now sell it to other companies around the world. So Sky News use it and DR, the company that did the killing, regularly send their people on our creativity training, which I thought was is you know something we're very proud of. Danish TV. Danish TV, yeah. In fact I was over there recently and they're incredibly interesting in terms of the way they think about their dramas because we in this country know the killing, but actually they've got a string of real hits. And it's certainly not just down to our training, but we were enormously flattered that they sent us to that. Um, but I, I think the thing about that creativity point is that what we encountered, this little team of us who wanted to get these ideas into the organisation, was enormous resistance. Um, and I think it would be worth us just having a think about um, whenever you have to change anything, be it, um, you know, make savings, change the way you run your newsroom, change the way you respond to your audiences, change an idea of something, um, you will meet resistance because human beings intrinsically, and there's very few people who aren't like this, don't like change. And you know, often they're right not to like change. Change is often not very good for people. And if it is, it might take a long while to come through. And there's very few people who like change for its own sake. But change is the nature of what we're all dealing with given the digital world that we now live in. So I'll take you through a couple of examples of where I've had to manage big and difficult change. And the first was back in 2007 when I was director of BBC News and had to save about 20% of our budget over five years to be reinvested in changing strategic priorities. That meant closing around 500 jobs and then creating some new ones to be focused on the digital world. Um, I had a fantastic top team, 60% women by the way, that's very unusual in um, a news organisation. And we developed a plan to radically reinvent our newsroom. Um, but we didn't start with the savings target, although we didn't forget it either. We started with how our audience's consumption of news was changing. Um, and obviously I was helped in this by that early experience at Radio 4 about thinking about what the audience actually wants and is doing with its time. Um, at the heart of our plan then was something we called My News Now, giving audiences the news they wanted, when they wanted it, 
whilst maintaining the old platforms, radio and telly, which remained and are still very strong. Um, all of this sounds a bit obvious to your generation, the idea of news when you want it, but back then it was very, very new. Um, it was radical seven years ago, and we were effectively committing ourselves to a broadband future. And we were breaking some very profound beliefs within the extremely separate television and radio newsrooms, which had always assumed they would sort of remain unchanged. Um, we were, of course, it was seven years ago, incredibly unsophisticated about the impact of social media. Um, we were a bit more sophisticated about the use of user-generated content because we were starting to get extraordinary amounts of film and photographs just sent in by the public. Um, and the mobile and the tablet technologies were on the rise. Tablets weren't really there. Mobiles certainly were. Um, so my mantra for this piece of change was everything will bounce off the web. And we were effectively telling our staff that a revolution was about to take place. And to be completely honest, many of them were completely horrified. They could only see destruction and worse chaos ahead. Um, we thought initially we would instigate this new world when we moved to our brand new building in the centre of London. But as the clock ticked away and the building programme fell behind schedule, but unfortunately the savings targets did not, um, we pulled forward the date and decided to create the new multimedia newsroom in the old building. This is the one that's in West London that's now been shut up and is being turned into a hotel. Um, we would effectively build a new news paradise in the ashes of the old building. And that was extremely tough. Um, looking back, I realised that without actually being aware of it, we did use some of the creativity tools and techniques we'd employed through our creativity training. So we created lots and lots of initial ideas, setting up small teams of staff from every level to develop new ways of thinking about things. Um, we thought very hard about what audiences wanted from us. You know, what were they likely to want from our new services and how did the newsroom play to that? Um, and we focused on delivery. Getting the detail right was incredibly important because our reputation for reliable news hung on it. If we fell off air, so our reputation fell off a cliff. And we had to build in lots of reviews and iterative learning. That's learning by doing and looking at it and learning again. Because the scale of the operation was so big, we couldn't do it all at once. Um, I knew that I would always find the technical detail quite difficult, so I chose a brilliant deputy, Adrian Van Claveren, who both loved the technical detail, but also whose job was basically to push this through. So he had the time to engage in long and frankly often anguished conversations about the nature of the change from people all over the building. Um, who here has been through change? Come on, if you haven't, it's going to come and get you. Um, so you don't need me to tell you that major change is extremely destabilising and individuals need a lot of time to absorb it and work through their emotions. And they had a lot to absorb. We were doing some seemingly brutal things to create a multimedia newsroom. We had to break up the beloved radio newsroom which had operated as radio for nearly 90 years. We had to change how television saw itself, hugely important, which it still is, but no longer at the centre of the universe because online had arrived. Um, we streamlined and shaped and persuaded, and above all, we worked 
incredibly hard at communication. Um, this sounds really simple, communication. It's the heart, it's the thing we do all the time in our working lives, and it's the most difficult thing to get right within an organisation. Uh, the key, I think, to getting people behind your vision is to think it through and then communicate it relentlessly um, with real detail and with a real open attitude to challenge. Um, Firstly, people want to know what your vision is, be it a programme idea or a major piece of editorial and managerial engineering. Vision's a very difficult word because it means it, it, people think it's got to sound, you know, sort of almost heavenly. It isn't. It's just where we are going with detail. Um, they want to know why you're doing it and they really don't want a set of platitudes, but they want an audience case for all this change. Um, they want to feel you're not hiding anything. I never tried to do that thing of pretending I was making changes for editorial reasons when really they were about saving money. But equally, if I felt an editorial change was necessary because our audience insight told us the audience was changing, you say that too. Um, I always said we have to save money because we need to invest. And frankly, the way to save the money is to ride the digital wave. You know, that was the only way and remains the only way to stay relevant to our audiences. Um, in terms of the amount of relentless communication, Adrian and I did about 30 separate lunchtime sessions with middle and senior staff, painstakingly taking them through the audience insights, the vision we had of how we could better serve them, and the ways we expected to change. And it was very bracing, and that's a euphemism. Um, there were lots of really hard questions, um, but you learn a lot of resilience in that fiery furnace. Um, and the key thing it reinforced for me was how good our staff are, actually. I mean, what came over was that they would go a very, very long way in change they didn't really want to see happening if they genuinely thought it was going to be for the good of the audience. There's something about public service broadcasters, I think, generally, which is inspiring about their commitment to audience. They will be turkeys who will vote for Christmas sometimes if they think in the end it will benefit the audiences because they care so deeply about the audiences. Um, and it was actually quite humbling to see people move from shock and denial and all those grief reactions into, mm, I can see where you're coming from, I can see why we might need to do that. That took at least nine months, probably... <coughs> about a year and eventually the moment came when I had to do the big speech to all my staff that was over 2,000 of them around the UK and the world we called it the Fidel Castro speech because it lasted 45 minutes and it went into a great there were no jokes and it went into a lot of detail for which I made no apology because if you're changing people's lives upside down the least they deserve is some decent detail the content and the tone of that speech proved critical. Before the speech, we were hovering on the edge of industrial action. At the end, the then DG, Mark Thompson, congratulated me on what he called turning the dial, which by which I think he meant shifting attitudes just enough for people to think twice about striking over a plan which was so obviously focused on the audience. And it would be nice to say that was all done and dusted then, but of course that's only the start of real change. Implementing real change, keeping confidence in the plan, and flexibility <coughs> where you've got it wrong, is immensely wearing and requires enormous amounts of trust and honesty within the top team. And we got some things badly wrong. So I remember a lovely, talented middle manager storming into my office in tears, and her job was closing. She'd only just found out. She felt betrayed and abused. 
I was staggered. I'd assumed it was self-evident that her job was closing. I'd been very impressed by how calm she'd been about it. And then I suddenly realised she wasn't calm at all. She simply hadn't realised it was going to happen. And her boss, a lovely, decent man, had never quite fronted up the fact that her role wasn't about her, it was her role, was one of the ones that was going to close in this restructuring and reorganisation. Like me, he'd assumed she'd made the right connections. And that was a huge lesson for me about not making assumptions. My team and I had become so used to the full enormity of what we are doing that we'd inadvertently forgotten just how radical it seemed to those hearing it for the first time. We'd normalised it in our own brains. We'd forgotten that, like lots of things, the first time you hear them, they're very shocking, which is why you need to keep on repeating and repeating. And actually, I think much worse, and I feel worse about this, is that we'd sort of temporarily forgotten that for every role we were closing, there was a real person in it doing a good job and caring just as much as we did about the BBC and our audiences. And there were other mistakes. We overcut in radio and had to reassign some of the tiny budgets they have. We totally underestimated how hot and noisy the new multimedia newsroom would be. Uh, we underestimated the amount of rubbish people would leave at their desks. Uh, because if it's not your exclusive desk, why should you pull it up? I'll just leave that half-eaten sandwich on this hot desk. Um, we forgot that there would be mice coming out of the holes, doing the knocking down the walls, to eat the sandwiches. I mean, there were lots of really practical things. But actually, we worked through all of that. Um, and having created a multimedia newsroom in a building, frankly, totally unsuitable for it, we were fantastically well-placed to move our staff and all our programmes into the wonderful new building in Portland Place, the new broadcasting house, when it was eventually ready. Um, I suspect most people in news have probably forgotten the detail of that journey. There'll be lots of stories about the mice, there always are. Um, they've probably forgotten how once we were very divided into radio, television and online. And they'll certainly have forgotten that online was definitely the unloved stepchild. When I arrived, online and News24, or the news channel as it became, were so unregarded that quite often when a story broke, people would forget to tell them about it. And that was one of the first tasks I had, was to make clear that they needed to be brought into the family. Um, it's not that we don't do excellent radio and television news programmes now, and both of them are in audience terms very strong, but I think in news each part knows that the whole of news is multimedia, and the excellent new news director, James Harding, has reorganised again because, of course, digital consumption is changing again. Um, but I feel proud that we went through some really tough change through a small revolution and changed BBC News forever. That change will continue, but it was a, a big step. I'm now back in radio, where, as you can tell, I started. Um, it's a great place to be. It's got good audiences. It's full of incredibly creative people devoted to their stations and their many and diverse audiences. It has a touch of glamour. Um, you know, sometimes you get to meet rock stars. Sometimes you get to meet famous conductors of orchestras. And it's tons of fun most of the time. But even here, as I came in, you know, we were having to say, make significant savings because, for those of you who don't know, the last licence fee settlement, we said we would absorb the cost of taking World Service Radio, BBC Monitoring and local television and S4C into the cost of the licence fee, which meant we've had a huge cost-saving programme 
and we also said we wouldn't cut any services. So that's why we've been under the financial cosh. Um, radio, when I left news, I was running 8,000 people. I'm now running about 1,500. And you might think that change was easier in a small division. Actually, it's just as difficult. And in some ways, it's more difficult because the dynamics are very different. So making cuts in news was hard, but we had a strong narrative. We were cutting to make investments in new services, which I could demonstrate that audiences would use and love. So our mobile phone service, which was something we invested in, you know, has grown and grown and grown, and the news app is incredibly important. The other thing about news, as you all know, is that most parts of it are dependent on each other. You know, take away news gathering, and the news bulletins on radio and television don't happen. Take away current affairs and those groundbreaking investigations which feed those news bulletins don't happen. Um, and I'd also add that my news team had a majority of bright, practical, collaborative women, as well as some wonderful men, which I think helped with the successful implementation of the plan. It's a stereotype, but I've always found news people very commonsensical in their approach, and in the end they get on with things. At BBC Radio, I inherited some fantastically good and creative controllers who I both admire and like very much. Um, but they had very few mutual dependencies and indeed in some cases were competing for the time and attention of overlapping audiences. So everybody who listens to our Radio 3 service, that's our classical music and culture service, um, almost certainly is also a Radio 4 listener. So they are intrinsically slightly rivals. Um, a chunk of the Radio 4 audience loves Radio 2. Radio 2 is probably the happiest sound <coughs> service that the BBC produces. It's the most popular radio station in Europe. Um, and some <coughs> people like to leave Radio 4 for a bit of light relief and go to Radio 2. So there's some intrinsic tensions there. Um, and these radio stations are very successful. They've grown up very differently over the years. And in a sense, as director of radio, I'm rather like the holding company for all these different businesses. So when I arrived, the controllers had done great work separately, achieving about half the savings that we needed. But it was obvious to me that the only way we could find the rest was by joining up far more than we'd ever done in the division, developing a shared vision of radio, which you know all of us could sign up to. We had to have a, a, an authentic and future-facing reason for change. We had to have a vision and a strategy for implementing that vision. And we also had to have a deep confidence and determination that we could do it. Um, there's a great <coughs> quote from Leo Tolstoy in War and Peace about how you win wars. And actually, big change can sometimes feel like a war, hopefully not with the people you're working with, but against the forces of resistance. And Tolstoy says, the strongest of all warriors are these two, time and patience. And... Um, I think if you're going through any kind of change, just hang on to that quote. There's also a third, which is resilience, but I'll come to that in a bit. Um, of course, there were real audience changes to change in radio, just as in news. Radio audiences are changing the way they consume. They're still listening in their millions in this country. Um, we have record reach, attracting 48.3 million listeners a week, 91% of the UK population. Um, and that audience is tuning in on average for over 21 hours a week. And yet, I kind of arrived on day one and thought, week one, so what are the audience challenges? And within about 10 days, I've discovered that actually, for the past 10 years, there's been a steady fall amongst all age groups in the average number of hours per listener 
each week. And that's true of commercial and in BBC. It's most acute amongst younger audiences, where there's been a fall of um, a quarter in average hours among 15 to 24-year-olds over the same period. But um, which means that Radio 1, the BBC's most important youth brand, although it still has got a formidable 42% of the 15 to 24 audience, its hours amongst this age group have gone down by 32% in the last 10 years. I sometimes go and do speeches um, in kind of inner city schools and uh, talk to them about the BBC and about public service broadcasting. And I usually say, who listens to the radio? And not a single hand goes up. And that is a very chilly moment. And then I say, hmm, who listens to Radio 1? And quite a few hands go up. And I think, well, that's very odd. And of course, they don't understand by listening to the radio. What they mean is I listen on the telly, I listen on my computer, I listen on my mobile phone, I, I go onto YouTube. Um, equally, Radio 1 has a YouTube channel which is the most successful radio YouTube channel in the world at the moment. And a lot of young people think of Radio 1 both as an audio and visual service. The idea of it just being an audio service is completely dead for them. They just don't understand it, uh, which is director of radio is quite a challenge. We've just launched in Radio 1, we have something called BBC iPlayer, which is a catch-up service. And we've just launched um, a Radio 1 um, iPlayer channel because those little films built around music are so popular and are often a way of bringing an audience in who will then also listen to Fern Britain or Grimmy in the Morning but they just do not see it as radio they see it as Radio 1 and that's an audio and a visual brand but it's not just the young who are shifting their listening habits my old stomping ground Radio 4 is under some pressure too over the past 10 years reach for the 35 to 54 age group is down by 22%, and total hours is down by 20%. And this is reflected in the sale of radio sets, down a staggering 54% since 2005, as sales of smartphones, tablets, and notebooks have soared. So when John Burke was our Director General, he said the internet will change everything. And because the pace of change is never as you expected, you know, for a long while we thought we well, might be wrong. But actually the reality is that we are now seeing people aren't leaving our services because they don't like them. They're leaving them because they have so much choice and they have so much pleasure. It's never been a better time to be a consumer. And staying with the service, I always used to listen to Radio 4 in the evenings. Now I often watch really good BBC drama on iPlayer that I've missed the first time it went round. I catch up on American radio because I love a lot of American speech radio. I also love Radio 4. So you can see even me, a kind of BBC Radio 4 loyalist, have changed my habits. So there were really strong audience reasons for change, but the idea of working together on the practicalities wasn't automatic for every network, which is ironic in a way because our music radio stations are already very good at working together creatively. You know, we do the BBC Proms, the largest music festival in the world, and we've always teamed up with sister stations on several occasions to produce some outstandingly original shows for radio, television, and online. So we did a one extra prom when we had, I think it was the concert orchestra and some hip-hop stars, and I thought, oh dear, this could be really terrible. And actually, it was brilliant. The most um, heart-stopping moment of that was normally when you go to the proms, people are in their seats a good 20 minutes before the concert begins. 
on this one, they came in in the last five minutes, and I was sitting there thinking, no one's going to come, no one's going to come, but they did. Um, the huge Glastonbury Pop Music Festival is a model of Pan BBC radio, television, and online collaboration. We had our second Six Music Festival. Um, Six Music is um, sort of specialist indie music, and again, interestingly, almost everybody who listens to Six Music also listens to Radio 4, or a subset of the Radio 4 brand. And that was heavily trailed on Radio 4 and Radio 3. So we know that we can do things together creatively, but the idea of sharing so-called support functions, changing the way we do things behind the scenes to save money and doing things together was a very new journey for us. Um, we had a very good change team. We created plans for making savings without savaging <coughs> services for our audiences. We brought together some of the management and operational functions that support our radio stations and two new hubs. We created a pop music hub for Radio 1, 1 Extra, 2, 6 Music and the Asian Network. We created a speech and classical music hub for Radios 3, Radio 4, 4 Extra, the Proms and the performing groups. We simplified the level of production support to give our speech programmes to get them onto air more simply and only doing what was absolutely essential. And um, we reorganised our multi-platform department to support the new hub structure while still providing specialist report. And we also rationalised our what we call visualisation. Visualisation is the making of those little films I talked about. When I arrived, everybody wanted everything visualised. That's incredibly expensive, and what we discovered was that most radio audiences in three and four certainly don't want to watch little films. Um, radio One's audience certainly does, and Radio Two's audience that's average aged about 53. If you've got Elton John or Rod Stewart, and you film it properly, and you put it on red button, they're very, very interested. But they don't want a bit of rough footage online. They're not that kind of audience. So we rationalized all of that to make our savings. Um, there was a critical point in this difficult journey, a point when I knew as a leader we'd got this part cracked. And that moment came after months of talking to small groups of staff about the imminent changes. I did, we did what I'd done in news, which is soften the ground, explain to people, explain again. Um, I did a dress rehearsal of my big speech to the whole division in front of the top team, when I would, again, be announcing more change and more redundancies. And that team included my beloved controllers, um, and then I invited them to respond to it and ask me questions. And it was a good speech, I'd worked very, very hard on it, but their suggestions made it better. And you all know this moment when you can feel in a room a kind of change of emotional temperature from sceptical to positive. Um, and as a leader of creative people, it doesn't matter if you've got a team of 440, 400, that moment of trust is incredibly important. So we launched our plans and we're now in the middle of implementing them. And um, we made huge steps forward, but I'd also say we had lots of steps backward where you just think, well, I thought we'd made that clear. Oh, we obviously haven't made it clear. Someone hasn't understood. The hardest thing actually at this point is people who did one job giving up that job to do the different job. Because very often we all want to carry on doing both. And, and when you change the ways people work, it's really hard to break the habits that you're used to. Um, and all of that brings me on to one of the most important qualities you need, I think, to live in an age of great change at any level. But certainly you need it as a creative leader. And that's the quality of resilience. Um, I think there are some incredibly useful lessons to be learned from the hard times. 
So one of them is about groundwork. If you've put time and effort into building the argument for change, however wearing it gets, you should have the evidence to back up what you're doing. And then, as I've said, you have to keep repeating your messages time and again. I can't emphasise enough how much you have to repeat your messages when they are difficult, because experience has taught me that as human beings, we have an almost infinite capacity for denial and not hearing the unpleasant news. Um, but you also need to be straight. Don't pretend something is an editorial change when it's really a cut. Don't assume people whose jobs are at risk will find any comfort in any words you say. Never say, I know how you feel. You have no idea what that person feels when you're telling them their job is closing and yours isn't. If you want to really understand this, watch the David Brent sequence in The Office, which is a satirical comedy programme um, uh, on the BBC with Ricky Gervais, where there's a brilliant scene where he tells people that most of them are losing their jobs, but he's been promoted. And it is the archetype of what you shouldn't do, but it's easy to get a version of that. Um, it also really helps if you worked really hard at communication before you begin the change. You know, trust doesn't happen easily or overnight, um, so you need a bedrock of trust before you begin the hard messages. Build a strong and complementary team around you, and I mean complementary as in um, not giving each other compliments, but um, simpatico, a team <coughs> that genuinely pulls together and who can feed back to you when you need it as a leader, but equally where you have complementary skills. You don't want people who have all the same skills because you'll miss great gaps. Be clear and honest with yourself about what feedback you're getting, and if in your heart of hearts you know you've misjudged something, like I did about the radio cuts, um, change your plan. And then finally, and this is a key lesson of resilience in any situation, it's true if you're doing a really hard story, a difficult programme, or this kind of change. You've got to look after yourself. Um, that might sound a bit obvious, even possibly a bit self-serving, but it is absolutely critical. If you get incredibly overtired or over-obsessed, you will lose perspective. And if you lose perspective, you will lose your footing on the ground, and that can be fatal. So a key strength in creative leadership is acres and acres of resilience. And frankly, just as you can build your skills in developing ideas, in journalism, managing difficult creative people, you can build your resilience. Um, it's by doing a lot of those steps. I think some of my resilience for the end came in those meetings where I was taking people through why we were going to have to change, and these was the audience insight. And I got really brutal questions because people didn't want the audience to be like that. And in the end, you have to say something like, I'm sorry, you can't sack the audience. They can sack you, but you can't sack them. And slowly but surely, people move their position. Um, and finally, and this is personal to me, though I don't think I'm wrong in this, if you can, and we don't always have the opportunity, when you're going through change, it always, always helps if you're working in an organisation which has the values you care about. Um, it may not always live up to those values, but at least it tries. Being at odds with the values of your workplace, we know is hugely sapping of energy, self-confidence and motivation. My husband's a newspaper man, and he's worked in his time for newspapers where his values and theirs were extremely different. And in the end, it was very important he left those and went to newspapers that were more sympathetic to his values because it drains your energy if you're in the wrong place. I've been at the BBC a long time now, both as 
in many different roles. I'm unusual because I started as a reporter and have ended up on the executive board. There is literally no one around the table who's done that uh, from a BBC background. Um, I've had some very, very good times. I've also had some character building times. But I've um, <laughs> never given up on the BBC because at the heart of it, it embodies the values I care deeply about. It's simple aims to inform, educate and entertain. It's commitment to impartiality and independence. It's fundamentally democratic nature. Anyone can get access to world-class excellence because of a licence fee costing just £2.80 a week. All those things are massively important reasons for me to work there. And at the risk of sounding pompous, I think those things are massively important to the cultural and democratic health of our nation. Its values chime with mine. So despite the challenges we face and the difficult change we will continue to go through, it's never going to end, and I'm sure those are challenges a lot of you recognise, for me, the very idea of the BBC remains something well worth fighting for. Richard Curtis, who started Red Nose Day, once described the BBC as a good deed in a naughty world. I probably wouldn't use the word naughty, I'd say something darker. But he is essentially right, I think. And I have to say that if you have underlying purpose that's based in your value system, I think you can go through some very, very tough times and you can thrive. Thank you very much. Thank you.